we will again, um, as I said earlier, finish out Hebrews chapter 12 tonight. So we, we've been walking through Hebrews, obviously, for a long time, looking at all of the things that Jesus is. And um, tonight, as we close out chapter 12, remember it's in the context of God the Father disciplining us, even using uh, difficult things, putting them into our lives for his purpose of conforming us to the image of his son. And so uh, it's been hard. I don't know about you, but it's been to some degree semi-depressing. Uh, but there's hope. There's hope in the, in the hard stuff. And so tonight we're going to see um, a little bit of a dichotomy in how we view God. We're going to see a couple sides of him as we see that Jesus is a consuming fire. We get that from the very last verse when it says our God, we know Jesus being God, our God is a consuming fire. And at first I know that probably sits um, awkwardly for some of you because you think of Jesus, you don't think, oh, that's a consuming fire. I mean, that sounds like Old Testament stuff. And the imagery that we have tonight actually comes from uh, Mount Sinai, where the law was given in the Old Testament with Moses, and then Mount Zion, a heavenly uh, kingdom that we actually um, are citizens of right now as believers. And so uh, as we walk through this, I want you to see that our theology, our motivation for why we do things, our theology is hugely important to God because our understanding of God dictates how we live, dictates everything. Uh, several years ago when we lived out west, we went to the Grand Canyon. I don't know if any of y'all have been to the Grand Canyon, but it is, uh, it's awesome. It's not, like, we, we have cool things here. We see pictures uh, of the Flint Hills or whatever. Like, it's great, it's pretty, but, like, there's a difference between pretty and majestic, and the Grand Canyon is, is simply majestic. And so we went there in the middle of the wintertime, Tara and I, and I was pumped. There were so many things I wanted to do, but once I got to the Grand Canyon, I realized, like, there was just all of these, th there was kind of a tension in, um, the activities. Like a lot of people just wanted to come and just look at it. That's a long way for so many people to drive, just to look at it. Yet there's a whole other group of people who wanted to hike down in it or to go down the Colorado River rafting, and they wanted to really experience it. And, and so it seemed like there was two different sides of what people were wanting to do through it. But as we got there, it was weird because we were up on the plateau looking over it, and on one hand, it was sunny, and we knew down below it was actually fairly warm, but where we were, it was negative 16, negative 16 degrees. It was absolutely freezing. On one hand, it was weird because you look down into that big old bowl, that big old canyon, and you think there's no life down there at all, and yet there's elk at the top of that thing just grazing right along the edge of the Grand Canyon. You think, how weird is that? You see all these people, all this life, all these tourists just everywhere looking at this beautiful thing. And yet we went into the visitor center and I saw this book. I picked it up. It's about this thick. And it was simply entitled The Deaths of the Grand Canyon. Like that many, and I flipped through it. And it's just story after story of people who had died in the Grand Canyon. And I just thought, what a weird dichotomy. Like on one hand, it's incredibly beautiful and just awe-inspiring. On the other hand, it's adventurous and welcoming and fun and exciting. One says, hey, this is going to be fun. This is going to give you life. The other side says, this could bring you death. And yet we know when we go to the Grand Canyon that we get both of those sides, Right? We get, we get the side that says, this is beautiful and awesome, and we get the side that says, this is sheer terror. 
But that's kind of part of the fun, right? Is you understand the fullness of it. And when it comes to our relationship with God, your experience walking with him will be as narrow as your understanding of him. And for some of us, we approach it like we approach the Grand Canyon and we say, this is beautiful and it's all grace and mercy and love and flowers and it's beautiful. And yet we don't understand how incredibly scary the presence of God can be. And we have a lack of respect and a lack of awe sometimes for God. And then there's others who just, who just see the fear and the, the things that make them tremble in God. And so they stand back so far that they never enjoy the presence of God. And the Christian life isn't about adventure and beauty and wonder and grace and mercy, but it's about a God with a heavy hand who's just waiting to crush them. And so they might partake because they're religious, but they don't really enjoy the relationship. And so we're going to see those worlds collide tonight. You see, understanding dictates behavior. If you want true life change, you have to have a change. You have to have a, a deepening, a revelation in your theology, your understanding of God. As the gospel, the good news truths of Jesus sink in more and more and more, you're going to see your behavior start to change as you live in light of that. And so as the Bible often does, and the book of Hebrews is no exception, it doesn't just tell you to go do good things. It doesn't say just be changed. But it lays down beautiful theology, and as our understanding changes, our lives change. And so as you walk through this tonight, I want you to ask yourself, as I walk with Jesus, how do I view him right now? Is he all just good and blessing and wonderful and he wants the best for me, or, or is he all just a big, heavy-handed father waiting to crush me. What do you, how do you view God? Because how you're experiencing him right now is directly tied to that. So Jesus is a consuming fire. Hopefully this will be encouraging for you. It starts off with some scary stuff in verse 18. If you've got a Bible, feel free to flip it open. Verses 18 through 21. Here's the first picture given to us from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Does this look like evangelical churches? <laughs> this, this picture usually isn't there. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I tremble with fear. So here's the first picture we're given. This is some Old Testament, Old Covenant motivation right here. And it's, it's built on fear. We see this whole picture given to us out of Exodus 19. And, and you've got to imagine, uh, because God tells them, he's going to give Moses the law, and he tells Moses to have all of Israel prepare themselves, to sanctify themselves, to be cleaned up. And he, he gives them three days to do this. So they're thinking in their minds, like, okay, we're going to go to Mount Sinai, this physical place here on earth, and, and, and God's going to be there, and this is going to be scary. And he says, I'm, I want you to draw a boundary line. If anything even gets close, if animals get close, like, they're going to be dead. 
The sheer presence of God is terrifying. And so they got three days to prepare themselves, and you got to imagine as they get close, it would have been sheer, sheer terror. And so you say, well, why, why is that experience so scary? Because our God is so powerful, his presence is so powerful, that unmediated holiness will always strike fear into that is, that is unholy. And that's what happens when you've got just the God of the universe who is holy and perfect and so powerful, and then you've got human beings who are not perfect. Unmediated, it just strikes fear in all of mankind. We talk about Jesus being our friend and God walks with us and, and all this, and, and it's all true. It's wonderful. But, like, there's also this side. There's this side. This is what these Israelites knew of God. As much as they knew the good stuff, they knew this scary stuff. It must have been hopeless. Because you know what happens when you walk into holiness? You always are made aware of your unholiness. I don't know about y'all, but when, you spend, when I spend time in the presence of the Lord, I always come away knowing my need for mercy and grace. Blessed that he gives it to me, but boy, I am well aware of it when I spend time in the presence. But some fear is healthy. I don't know that we always have a, a great understanding of fear. You see, there's a fear that comes from God that he built into mankind that, that is a good fear. For instance, um, if I am out on the African savanna, and there's a lion coming at me, like there's a fear that comes out, saying you need to get away. This could harm you. That's a good fear that's built into us, right? There's a fear that comes when you're in the presence of something that is far bigger than you are. And it creates a healthy respect for that. Our understanding, though, I think, in 2016 in America our understanding of fear often comes from irrational fear, right? Like, Because you and I, we, we get anxious, we get nervous about stuff, we fear things, but so often they're completely irrational. Like some of us might be struggling tonight with, with thoughts of how we're going to make it financially. And, we, and when you think, wow, you know what, I feared a lot of months how we're going to make it through financially. And yet how many of us, how many of us are homeless? How many of us have ever not made it through financially? Somehow, some way, have we ever not been provided for? There's a million different irrational fears, but that's what you and I are used to. And so when we think of fear, we don't think of it as a good thing, but it's a beautiful thing when it comes from the presence of God. But what happens is, here, and this is where fear is incomplete, if you, if you are away from this experience, okay, if you're out of this presence, then all of a sudden you go back to your old ways. Because Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days, comes back, what's the Israelites doing? Are they trembling anymore? No, they already made a golden calf. They already gone on and made another god. I remember six, seven years ago, I did some substitute teaching at a military school. And in this military school, I came in, and, and I was a civilian, which gives me zero respect, right? If you're a civilian, you get no respect in a military school, more than likely. Shouldn't probably generalize that. 
but in this case, I did not. And I remember the day was not going well um, at all. And I, I was teaching some seventh graders. And at one point, uh, one of the seventh graders, he was a big kid. He was, ma- he was fighting um, just verbally with another seventh grader. And they'd been doing this the whole time. And eventually he got up and he grabbed the kid and he slammed him up and against the cinder block wall. And I'm not talking like just like pushing him, like head bashing over and over and over. And I thought to myself, what in the world is going on? This is absolute madness. And all the other students, they'd acted like they'd done this a million times before. They all jumped on like dogpile, but it wasn't just a big ruckus. Like they each grabbed a, a part of the body of the kid who was doing the, the beating, and they pulled him off. And so like little worker ants, they all grabbed him, and they moved him off. And then one of them went and got uh, another kid who was like a junior, and, and that was supposed to be their officer. And he came back in, and all of a sudden the whole room was focused on him, obedient to him, and doing whatever he said. As I spent more time around these kids, and I talked to them just one-on-one, I knew so many of them feared what would happen when they got in trouble during the day. They would fear what happened at night because they had to stay there. And I remember thinking to myself, how incomplete is the motivation of fear? Like at best, it looks like behavior and lives are changed because it's under a shroud of discipline. But outside of the presence of those who can actually do something that can give consequences, all of a sudden we go back to our old ways so quickly. And true life change hasn't happened. So you say, what in the world is fear? Like what role does fear, then if this is what they experienced, what role could fear actually play for mankind? Well, God uses fear uses it to jolt people awake he uses it to get attention from some folks who need to be woken up martin luther said no fear is the worst fear of all we don't like to talk about fear as christians and yet we can't ignore proverbs that tells us what about fear it's the beginning of wisdom it's the beginning of wisdom And so we see in the context, remember the last few verses that we ended with last week talked about Esau who had sold his birthright. He didn't care about the promises of God to the extent that he sold it for a bowl of soup. And so God uses fear for folks who are so consumed with their bowl of cereal, their bowl of soup, that they care more about what they have right in front of them than the promises of God. And he jolts them awake. And you say, this sounds like a mean God. But the truth is, we know if you're not confronted with the fear of God on earth, you will on the day of judgment. So you can look at it as mean or you can look at it as grace. So think about the things that might be motivating you in your walk with Christ. There are all kind of motivators. You think about the way that we motivate in America. You think about the justice system. How do, they, how do they change behavior in the justice system? They just remove options. You go into a jail cell. If you still screw up, then you go into a littler jail cell without anyone in it. Solitary confinement. So you just don't have an option. There's other motivating factors like how about culturally? Some of us, we, we have a, a relationship with God or we go to church because we were just born into it. Culturally, you learn behavior, 
right? You have customs and traditions, and you just grow up in a specific environment that leans towards a, a certain behavior, and so that's why you do what you do. You think, well, my parents always took me to church. I'm just, I'm just, this is just what we do. But yet the connection with God isn't quite there. You think about career and relationship, behavior modification. What happens? When you gain something, you change your behavior. I want to climb the corporate ladder. I'm going to act a certain way. I don't want this person to break up with me, so I'm going to change my ways. But is any of it true life-changing, long-term transformation? You think about peer pressure. Whatever is acceptable is going to make my behavior change. So I'm going to, I don't want to be an outcast, so I'm going to move towards this. All kinds of motivating factors, but all of them are incomplete. And the gospel offers us something so much better to where the free will of mankind collides with the grace and love of the Son and the Father. That the gospel draws us in, that it illuminates our need for Savior, but then reveals the answer in Jesus. So much better. When you see a God who doesn't need you but chose you, who created you and watched you walk away but says, I'm going to draw you back, who sees the fact that you cannot get from there to here and says, I'm going to do it for you. There's got to be something that motivates us better than what this world offers when it comes to motivation, and only the gospel can do that. Fear, Old Testament motivation. Verses 22 through 24, now we see the contrast of a different picture. But you, so he's talking to the Hebrews, but he's talking to us as well. You have not, excuse me, <laughs> let's back up there. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So we're, we're talking about heaven, we're talking about angels. Some of your translations might say a myriad of angels. We're talking about the church, the assembly of the firstborn, ecclesia. It's the gathering uh, of the saints who are enrolled in heaven. You see everywhere from Luke to several times in Revelation, this Lamb's book of life. When you find yourself uh, as, with Jesus as Lord, you are written into this scroll we're enrolled in heaven citizens in heaven and to god the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect so the church includes both us and the saints of old and to jesus the mediator of a new covenant it's what hebrews is all about this new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of abel we'll talk about that in just a second here we see some new testament motivation so two different covenants, but same God. And the author's saying, hey, you think that stuff back then, you think that experience was crazy? God has something so much more in store. Because that all had to do with earthly promises, right? It was all done on, on a mountain, and, and it was earthly, and the law, it was not permanent in the sense that there was something better, there was something that was going to fulfill it. And it doesn't come from earth, it, it comes from heaven. And so for the Jews, you gotta, you, you got to understand, for the Jewish um, folks, Mount Zion meant Jerusalem, 
right? So they, they, all through the Old Testament, are thinking about Mount Zion, and it's the hill that Jerusalem is built on, not just the temple, which is Mount Moriah, but it was the whole city of Jerusalem. And so they're expecting, all throughout the Old Testament, when we get to uh, their messianic prophecies, they're expecting the David, the Davidic kingdom to be renewed, a political power. They're expecting, even Jesus' disciples are expecting this whole thing to be an earthly kingdom that Jesus is going to inaugurate, Right? And he will one day, but he took everything and said, no, they're spiritual. These things are symbolic. It's spiritual. There's a, there's a heavenly Jerusalem. And so now we see things redefined, that it goes from earthly to heavenly, and that's where our citizenship resides. You see, this, this is what makes one of many things, Christianity, different than all other world religions. Is we don't have a geographic place on earth that is the place that we're going to access God. And we don't have that temple. We try to have all the time, right? Even in the evangelical world, you'll see churches named such and such temple. You got folks all the time who are going to come in here on a Sunday morning, and there's something in them that thinks, I am going to connect with God more in this worship service than if I was anywhere else in the city. As if like the worship leader or the pastor or someone else can usher us into the presence of God. Only through this new covenant, only through Jesus Christ can we be ushered into the presence of God. And he can do that anywhere. He doesn't need this building. But we want something special, right? So you can have friends and family tell you, and I don't want to demean this, but I want us to to think about this properly. You can have folks who tell you, I want to take a pilgrimage. I want to go to the Middle East. I want to see where Jesus walked. And that's great, and that might give you goosebumps, but that does nothing for you spiritually. If it does, you might have conjured it up for yourself because you don't access Jesus anymore in Jerusalem as you do right here in Old Salina Camp. So it might be a special experience for you. But Christianity doesn't have any pilgrimages except for here to heaven. That's it. Got to do a little dream crushing once in a while. Some of you are thinking, I was going to go to the Middle East, and now it's less special. <laughs> it could still be special. Just don't. Yeah. Okay, moving on. So this passage encourages us of this new imagery that we have, this reality. You ever been at work and you just thought to yourself, this is crazy. Like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here at work. I don't want to be doing what I'm doing. Like, I just want to be somewhere else. I remember <laughs> in junior high, I was so flooded with anxiety on a regular basis. I was so nervous socially that on the weekends, we lived on the edge of a tiny little town. On the weekends, I would oftentimes, when the weather was good, I would go over this big hill that we had, and there were ponds, and it led to a couple miles away to a big lake, and I would just roam the countryside like a little Robin Hood or something. But I remember that was like my getaway. It's just to be out in nature. I just, I wanted to be alone. And, and I found that, I found solace. I didn't have faith. I wasn't a believer back then. I didn't know much about Jesus. And so that was my solace. And on Monday or Tuesday, even when I was back in junior high, we'd have football games or basketball games. And I'd be on the bus. And like the, the most intense parts of my anxiety, because I hated being on a bus. I hated to be with all those kids. I was just so scared that I was going to be socially embarrassed. Remember the irrational fear thing? I know a little bit about that. And I remember I would just daydream about the weekend. 
some of us are like, I live for the weekend right now. That's how I get through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I would just daydream about when I could be away and in a whole nother reality. Christians don't have to daydream. The reality is we're not citizens here. The reality is we're part of a kingdom that, yes, one day will be inaugurated here on earth, but it's a kingdom that spiritually is here and advancing all the time. Like, we don't have to daydream about climbing the corporate ladder because we know in this kingdom the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We don't have to daydream about getting approval from people by working harder and just doing more because in this kingdom we're accepted by the work of the Son. We don't have to live and daydream about the time that we can finally retire and rest because we find spiritual rest in this kingdom any second we want it under the finished work of Christ. There's no daydreaming. And I want you to see a contrast in this that's beautiful. And it's going to go back from verse 19 to 24. I want you to see verse 19 and 24 and what it says. You can see in verse 19, it had said that the voice, okay, from Mount Sinai, way back in the Old Testament, the voice made them beg no more. Like, please don't talk to us anymore because it just terrified them. And yet here in verse 24 in this new covenant, it says that the voice we have through Jesus speaks a better word. Like that no, nobody's saying, don't speak anymore, Jesus. Nobody, nobody's saying that. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now remember, way back when in Hebrews, we talked about how Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel, way back at the beginning of time here, when we see in the beginning of Genesis, he is killed by his brother Cain. And so Abel's blood cried out from the ground, God said. It cried out for justice, and so Jesus' blood speaks a better word because it provides justice. It's the wrath of God taken on him, even for murderers like Cain. Abel's blood cries out, condemning Cain, making him guilty and making him flee because he's scared of the consequences. Jesus' blood cries out. Mercy on sinners and bringing them in and drawing them into the presence of God. You want to know what Jesus' blood cries out? You want to know what motivates believers? Jesus' blood cries out, I love you. I'm going to cover you. When my blood's on you, my father sees me when he sees you. When my blood's on you, you're found in me. I forgive you, is what that blood says. I redeem you. I'm making you new. I purchased you. I'll protect you. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. So believers have the picture of God in verse 19 that makes us tremble because his presence is so powerful. But we live under the reality 
that were covered by the blood. When you talk to God, I'll just be honest in your own heart right now. When you picture God, I don't know about you, but when I pray, I've got to picture God. Otherwise, I feel like I'm just talking to nothing. Do you picture a God who's angry at you, who demands justice and wrath? Or do you find yourself calling God daddy? A lot of people have a hard time calling God daddy. A daddy who is powerful and can do whatever he wants, which creates respect, but who chooses to fight for them. And to love them. To be gentle with them. That's a game changer for your experience with God. When you pray tonight, call him daddy. See if that's hard. If that's hard, there might be some spiritual breakthroughs that are coming. Verses 25 through 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So here we we had the first five or six verses give us the understanding of the theology, the picture painted, and now here is what we do with it. And so do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not, that's the Israelites, if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, remember, he saw them, the golden cow, the whole thing, and he, he did not let that go unnoticed or unpunished. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So this isn't, oh man, it was scary in the Old Testament, but it's way less scary now. Like God is somehow not as powerful as he was. God's just as powerful. He just made a way. We don't have to fear him because we have a mediator now. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. And so we see a quote here. This is from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. So that's all of creation. That's everything. These shakable things. The removal of the things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. All right. We see a holy shakedown here. This is beautiful. Verses 25 and 26 say, listen, okay, listen to God. Because if, if they didn't escape in the Old Testament, how much more when God doesn't just show up on earth, but God from heaven is giving us these promises. If you don't listen to him now, it's just as serious and even more so. But verse 27, oh, this is, this is crucial for Christians. Christians need to have a fundamental understanding. Maybe this will change things for you tonight. A fundamental understanding that God is making all things new through the gospel. Okay? This might not mean much to you, but this, this, this can help. This is crucial. He's making all things new. The old is going to pass away. Everything you see, this right here, is going to pass away. Flames are going to eat this up. 
Our relationships, wonderful, great, hopefully eternal things are, are coming from them, but they're all going to pass away. My job is going to pass away. This building, this earth, heaven, it's going to be a new heaven. Is that not crazy to think about? Why, why would God do that? But God's going to make an all new earth, all new heaven. And so this passage is saying, don't cling to the shakable things. Don't cling. You see, part of the beauty of the gospel, and part of the beauty of the gospel is that Christians, you and I, we are the firstborn in Christ. So we are the first things that have been made new. If God's spirit has sanctified you, if he has placed his spirit in you, when you place your faith in Christ, you are part of the first things made new. For some of us, this might make sense why we feel so out of place. Because everything else around us is crumbling. Okay, things will be made new, but we stand out. Because we've already been made new. And so to some degree, you and I, if I don't know, some of, you, some of y'all are just like, I don't know, this, it doesn't make any difference for me. But like, this was a game changer for me. Because when I realized that like I am, everything's going to be made new, but the first things to be made new, I'm part of that. I started to see the Christian life completely different. To some degree, like we are setting the pace for the rest of all creation to be made new. We're not making it new. He's making it new. But we're, 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 you, you go to a marathon, and often you got, you got someone take off up front. What, what are they? They're the pace setter. First person out there, and they set the pace for everyone else. And that's what we are. Like, that's why the gospel, it, when we show redemption, when we, when we go to a neighborhood, okay, in, in the city of Salina, and, and it is just graffiti-ridden and tore up, and, and we help to make it new. We take something broken, and we redeem it. We plant a garden where there was just bricks and, and nastiness. Like, we are, usher, we are showing what God is doing in all of creation. He's making it new. He's redeeming, adding value to all things. So when people see that, they actually see an aspect, a beautiful part of the gospel. So Christians are part of that. It doesn't get you pumped up like me. It gets me, it gets me excited. Because we get to show restoration and redemption to a world that will experience it at some point. Not saying everyone's going to heaven, but you know what I mean. What we see in these verses is that we got two different covenants, but we got the same God. And he's no less the God of the Old Testament now that we're in the new, and vice versa. And I think the church, even though we know the truth that we don't have to fear God in the sense that now we have a mediator, okay? We're not in the same position as the Israelites were in the Old Testament. We have Jesus given as access. But it would be a healthy thing for the church to have a little more fear and trembling. I think it would be incredibly healthy. Let me give you an example. So I've been lulling you to sleep with theology for a little bit. Let me, let me push some buttons. The topic in our city, for whatever reason, one of the hot button topics has been women in ministry theologically around our city. 
Several churches have talked about it. Some are reevaluating. And this is something that anywhere you're in ministry, it doesn't matter if we're in Utah, Nebraska, Virginia, Kansas, like people are going to talk to you about it because it's important. It's not essential to the faith, but it's, a, it's an important aspect um, because it's biblical and we see what God has to say about it. And in our culture, man, people just don't want to hear some of the things the Bible has to say. I've had this discussion with a ho- more times than I, than I care <laughs> to, to have. And it's so easy for people to get riled up. And I'm not going to dig into all that stuff tonight, but here I want, I want to get to this point. The other day, I kind of finally, I just broke a little bit. I just broke because I've had a lot of discussions about the Bible. And someone well, was talking to me about it. And well, it was the semantics. Well, does it say this and compared to that? And maybe it was a cultural thing. And maybe, but like, it's, if you just read it for what it is, God has told us how he wants things. And I, I just kind of went off a little bit and I said, where is the respect for God and his word? Like, why can't we just read it and let it be? Why can't we just bow down? And stop trying to discuss and question and manipulate words that we can't. Like, why are we fighting for ourselves against God? Why are we trying to get things that he says, you know what? Maybe I know more than you. Maybe that. And maybe I say this. And at worst, for your sake, all it means for you is submission. Which is crucial to following Jesus to begin with. And I just got to the point where I was like, why can't we just bow down? Even if it slaps you in the face, you know it's good for you. Why are we discussing something until we're blue in the face? And at no point in the discussion is bowing down and falling on our face before God and just believing. We'll we'll take, we'll go every avenue we can to come up with some new theology or cracks in the word. The only cracks we need are in our heart, breaking the hardness. You're not sleeping anymore, are you? Back to the shakable stuff. Silas and I go hiking. We went hiking just a, a couple days ago. When we go hiking, sometimes I let him just meander by himself, trusting he's going to follow the narrow path we're on. But what happens so often is he finds himself grabbing onto flowers and twigs and all kinds of stuff. And that wouldn't be that big of a deal, but he's two. And I know that whatever he grabs onto, he generally consumes. It's just kind of part of it. And I know if he consumes it, it's not going to be healthy. And it could be downright dangerous. We need to know when we're walking with the Father, the Christian life, the temptation for you and I is going to constantly be down the narrow path, constantly be wanting to stray from the Father's hand and grab on to the things that are shakable. And so we put a little too much emphasis on our relationships. Very important, but they're not God. They don't give us our value, our worth. Rather, we live in our relationships knowing our identity in Christ. We cling a little bit too tight to our houses, to our money, to our car, to our jobs. We get consumed by the things that are shakable. 
And so what's encouraging is God's reminding us there's some stuff in life that's unshakable. That's Jesus, and that's his kingdom. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you're going to see, you're going to be tempted to cling to, that's shakable. And it will bring you drama, because it can't fulfill what the unshakable stuff can. It's scared. It knows it will be shaken. It's going to clamor for your attention. It's going to, if you reach for it, it's going to grab you back, and it wants you to get dragged down in it. It's called the world. And so I want, I, I say that, because as we close up here with the last couple verses, you're going to be challenged tonight to see if you're clinging to some of the stuff that's shakable. Verses 28-29. Therefore, so here's the therefore. So we laid down all that theology. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This verse right here, there's a few words in here, and your translation might say it differently. Um, it's one of those that actually kind of makes doesn't make a huge difference, but there is, there's a lot of difference in the way that it's translated. But the Greek words can be translated, let us obtain the grace. Okay? Now, it doesn't change the meaning much, but it's worth noting. Therefore, let us be grateful, or let us obtain the grace, the free gift that comes from God, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God, here it is, for our God is a consuming fire. You can try to erase that from your Bible. You can say, no, that's just Old Testament because it does come from the Old Testament. It says our God is a consuming fire and he's jealous. If you, if you can't handle this one, tack on jealous and throw it in the Old Testament, that's coming from the Old Testament. But it's still our God. Our God is a consuming fire. The last thing we see is our proper response to all of this. So our proper response is that we need to know our God, the one who showed himself and revealed himself on Mount Sinai. He is worthy of trembling and fear and respect. And you see his people beg, no more, no more. But he shows you that side of himself so that he can show you and you will grasp in a more full way. Verses 24, remember when it said, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? If you don't understand how scary God was back then, you're going to never, ever understand how beautiful the cross is. You can talk about mediators all day long. It doesn't mean anything to anyone who's not standing in front of a judge. I don't care about mediators at the court system down in Salina right now. Because I ain't going to court. But once you know you're in court, you pay attention to mediators. And so we see God's power in the midst of our unholiness. And now we see our proper response is to have that same awe, that same respect. And then to offer ourselves as acceptable worship, which, which we see in Romans, is to offer ourselves, our lives to God. That that's acceptable worship. So we're going to submit to him. And so, but we still, we still got to deal with this right here. Our God is a consuming fire. When I was going through school down in Hutchins, and long before I was going to be uh, a preacher man, I went to school to be a firefighter. And it was fun because we actually got to be firefighters in school. And so we would show up each day, and we'd go through our 60-second routine. We'd, they called it donning and doffing. You don your equipment. You got to put it on in 60 seconds, and you got to doff it. You gotta, I don't know why they put the D in front of it. Maybe just to make us think, I don't know. But anyway, 
He'd have to put your equipment on and everything. And then as you learn stuff, we had uh, different things all around the, the building in South Hutch, and we would actually be in fires. And I remember I was in, there was a house there, and I was in a house fire. And I remember I, I went in to the room, and there was uh, a firefighter um, right next to me, and we were holding the hose. And I remember we were just spraying this fire, and it was, it was, trying to, it was coming at us, and we were just kind of huddled in the corner. And you've got to keep it down, otherwise it gets to a certain degree, and it causes flashover, which means it just consumes everything, and people don't survive if you're in flashover. Uh, and, and so we're just keeping this thing down, and I remember thinking, gosh, this equipment, this protection, these coats, pretty sweet. Like, this is good. Oh, we were sitting in there for quite a while. And we were just spraying it. And then I moved to my left. And when I moved to my left, my arm, again, I, I had the coat on, but my arm was sizzling like a clam being boiled because my protective coat was so hot that it actually burnt me through. Still, I'm sure you want to know this, still can't grow hair on that side. It looks funny over here. And that's common, actually, for firefighters. Is even with all that protective stuff, if they make the wrong turn, if they do something that they're not, they can get burnt right through it. And so should we be motivated in any way, shape, or form that our God is a consuming fire? Well, it depends. It depends if you're on the narrow path and you're walking with the Lord. Or if you turn and you get burnt. It depends if your face is in your bowl of soup like Esau. It depends if you find yourself clinging to the things that are shakable more than the things that are unshakable. But if you find yourself in him, oh, you can rest. You don't think of fire as something you can rest in, but when the fire is on your side, when you're in the fire, oh, you can rest. Spiritually, you can rest. Some of us this week, i got to imagine we're shakable. We're nervous. We're anxious. Some of us in here, we're unsure. We feel a lack of steadiness. Some of us are stressed and frazzled. Because it doesn't take much of the shakable stuff in our lives to get us that way. We see the news and we get angry. We see the politics and we get frustrated. We have relationships that break us. And sometimes bad news feels like it destroys us. But everything that shakes us is going to be shaken. And so you got to keep your eyes on what's unshakable. You see, maturity in Christ leads you to becoming a little bit unshakable. You think about the believers who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. You see on the news that 80-year-old dude who, who's been married for 50 years, but he's been following Jesus longer than that, and his house just got wiped away by a tornado, and he's standing out there being interviewed in the street, and you're thinking to yourself, either he's senile because he's so calm, or he's got something in him <laughs> that is making him calm. You know those people, those believers, the, those patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith who've been walking with Jesus so long, it doesn't matter what hits them, they're unshakable. 
because they find themselves more times than not in the thing that is unshakable than chasing after the shakable. That's their reality. They don't daydream about it. They don't talk about it as if it's something far away. They live in what is unshakable, the kingdom that we have access to. So this week, it's simple. Let's abide in the unshakable. And if you're in here and you're a believer, you're a disciple maker. And what's going to separate you from making disciples of yourselves compared to making disciples of Jesus is if the people you're pouring into are being pointed to the spiritual rock of Christ that is unshakable and not the things around them that might just be good advice or tips or helpful dot, dot, dot. You can counsel all day long, but if you're not pointing them to the thing that isn't going to perish, you're only setting themselves up. They're setting them up, they're setting themselves up for disaster. It's a good reminder. This is a hard chapter we just walked through. But there is hope and beauty. And anytime the church of Christ finds themselves with their theology broadening, that we see the fullness of God as much as we can on earth, you will be blessed by it. You will walk in it. You will understand that God who came on Mount Sinai, but you will be blessed in knowing I, I would, without Christ, I would have to fear the presence of God like that. But now I have access to the presence and it is beautiful and my God is powerful and just as mighty, but he looks at me as a friend. He looks at me in love because of what his son did for me. It's going to change the way you live. It's going to help you recognize grace and mercy on a whole nother level. Let's pray.